And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness for years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us, and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist, with deep jawbreaker eyes, red rope hair, gumdrop lips, Welcome to Podcast 19, or as we like to call it, the We Got Too Busy to Record Much Podcast. But that doesn't mean we're not bringing you lots of good stuff to listen to. Just not a lot of gabbing from us. Frank, what's an example? We have a great English tale of the supernatural and an old interview with the late, great Peter Yusinov. We also have A Mummy's Foot, Leonard Nimoy reading classic science fiction, and some Toad and Frog. Not to mention author Neil Gaiman explaining the making of a chair and Robert Preston leading us in exercise. And of course, lots more. All right, let's get it cracking. Ladies and gentlemen, this is uh, Roy Aubrey presenting my $3,000 electric accordion. All the sounds you hear on this album will be made by my accordion, except for Jesse the drummer. Jesse, here we go on uh, like uh, 12 Street Rag. Are you ready, boy? Thank you. 
Jesse. And thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for that deafening applause. I love applause. Of course, the boss doesn't. While you're applauding, you're not drinking. Today, I intended to begin to write. Stories awaiting like distant thunderstorms, grumbling and flickering on the gray horizon. And there are emails and introductions and a book, a whole damn book about a country and a journey and belief. I'm here to write. I made a chair. <laughs> I opened a cardboard box with a blade. I assembled the blade, removed the parts, carried them carefully upstairs. Functional seating for today's workplace. I pressed five casters into the base, learned that they press in with the most satisfying pop, attached the armrests with the screws puzzling over the left and the right of it, and the screws not being what they should be, as described in the instructions. And then the base beneath the seat, attached with six 40-millimeter screws that were puzzlingly six 45-millimeter screws. Then the headpiece to the chair back, the chair back to the seat, which is where the problems start as the middle screw on either side declines to penetrate and thread. This all takes time. Orson Welles is Harry Lyme on the old radio as I assemble my chair. Orson meets a dame and a crooked fortune teller and a fat man and a New York gang boss in exile, and has slept with the dame, solved the mystery, read the script, and pocketed the money before I have assembled my chair. <laughs> making a book is a little like making a chair. Perhaps it ought to come with warnings, like the chair instructions. A folded piece of paper slipped into each copy. Warning, only for one person at a time. <laughs> Do not use as a stool or stepladder. Failure to follow these warnings can result in serious injury. <laughs> One day I will write a book, and when I am done, I will climb it like a stool or a stepladder or like a high old wooden ladder propped against the side of a plum tree in the autumn, and I will be gone. But for now, I shall follow these warnings and finish making a chair. It's not on New Year's that I begin to think that changes need to be made in my life, but in the springtime, on the cusp of summer, that's when I become more active and I'm reminded of my limitations. And like the rest of America, I suddenly remember that soon I'll be in a bathing suit. So for me and people like me, we have three offerings tonight. We start with the wonderful Victor Buono with his Fat Man's Prayer. Then there's the souvenir record from Pat Dixon, the exercise director back in the day at the Lodge of the Four Seasons on Lake of the Ozarks, Missouri. She's backed up by the Four Seasons Cocktail Lounge Band. And finally, the great Robert Preston has an exercise song for us. It's written by Meredith Wilson, the guy who wrote the music and the words for The Music Man. The exercise song was commissioned by the Kennedy administration for the Youth Fitness Program. A record with it on it was sent out to schools all across the country for them to play over their intercoms in the morning while the kids burned off calories. It's so rousing I almost want to get up and exercise. 
Almost. In 1938, I was born. Properly, sufficiently, and despite a few hysterical shepherds, quietly. <laughs> My name is Victor Buono, and I'm fat. I've always been fat. I was a fat baby, and a fat boy, and now I'm a fat man. <laughs> Once I turned a somersault quite near the San Andreas Fault. Later, as I nursed my knee, a telegram arrived for me. The message part said, cool it, Victor. The signature read, Dr. Richter. <laughs> I think it only proper to end this portion of our discussion with a prayer. <laughs> Lord, my soul is ripped with riot, incited by my wicked diet. We are what we eat, said a wise old man. And Lord, if that's true, I'm a garbage can. <laughs> I want to rise on Judgment Day, that's plain. But at my present weight, I'll need a crane. So grant me strength that I may not fall into the clutches of cholesterol. May my flesh with carrot curls be sated that my soul may be polyunsaturated. And show me the light that I may bear witness to the President's Council on Physical Fitness. At oleo margarine I'll never mutter for the road to hell is spread with butter. And cream is cursed. And cake is awful. And Satan is hiding in every waffle. Mephistopheles lurks in provolone. The devil is in each slice of bologna. Beelzebub is a chocolate drop and Lucifer is a lollipop. Give me this day my daily slice. But cut it thin and toast it twice. I beg upon my dimpled knees, deliver me from jujubes. And when my days of trial are done and my war with malted milks is won, let me stand with the saints in heaven in a shining robe, size 37. I can do it, Lord, if you'll show to me the virtues of lettuce and celery, if you'll teach me the evil of mayonnaise, the sinfulness of hollandaise and pasta a la milanaise and potatoes a la leonaise and crisp fried chicken from the south. Lord, if you love me, shut my mouth. <laughs> While I welcome you to our daily dozen, stand up and luxuriously stretch that body every which way. I'm so happy that you could be here and we will have a wonderful family session. If you brought a friend, you are one. Keep stretching now to limber up. And remember, if you should tire before an exercise is through, just stop. And gradually, you will build up stamina and even go through the exercises several times a day, picking out your favorites that relate to your own particular problem areas. All right, make yourself comfortable for a moment. A special greeting to those of you who might be confined to bed or wheelchair. Some of these exercises you can certainly do, and others you may modify to give you strength and more awareness of your capabilities.
Before I say another word, please check the following. Is all the family present? New students, did you take your measurements? Repeat every two weeks. Is your attire loose and comfortable? No girdles or restrictions? Good. Leotards are ideal with a short sleeved top. Feet bare. Are you standing before a full length mirror? Do you have a firm exercise pad or a rug? Is your album propped up where you can see the little figures? Fine, then we're all set, except for our theme song, Bye Bye Blubber, to the tune of Bye Bye Blackbird. All together now. Come reduce the lodge's weight, lose a pound every day. Bye bye, flubber. Burn up all those calories. Feel as light as a breeze. Bye bye, flubber. Just fine. Touchdown every morning, ten times, not just now and then. Give that chicken fat back to the chicken and don't be chicken again. No, don't be chicken again. Push up every morning, ten times push up, starting low. Once more on the rise, nuts to the flabby guys. Go, you chicken fat, go away. Go, you chicken fat, go. Good morning, hands on hips, please. Now then, touch your toes with me, ready. Touchdown, up, every morning, down, ten times, not just, yep. now and then, four, up, five, that chicken fat, sex, to the chicken up. and seven, be chicken up. and steady, not too fast, ready, push up, down, every morning, ten times, push, push up, start, starting low, down, that's five, more down, the rise, six, to the flabby guys, go, you chicken fat, go away, down, go, you chicken fat, go, and halt, now struggle up to your feet, struggle, struggle, march in place, march, a good pound and a quarter was it right right that it should be left yes i left 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 
During a stroll through the countryside, I found myself on the road above a tunnel through which the railroad tracks pass. Down below was a tiny station which was maintained by the signal man who was standing near the great iron bars, which are the means of switching the tracks. I shouted down to him, Hello down there! Before he could answer, there was a vibration in the earth which quickly turned into a violent pulsation as a train roared out of the tunnel. As the train disappeared down the tracks, he folded his signal flag and beckoned me to come down. I found my way and joined him at the small building. He looked at me as if he was afraid. When I asked if anything was wrong, he said he thought he might have seen me before. When I asked where, he pointed at the red light at the mouth of the tunnel. I was quite puzzled as I followed him into the little house. Inside there was a fire, a desk, and a telegraphic instrument, and that was all. I asked what he meant when he pointed to the red light. Instead of answering, he asked a most strange question. What made me call out, Hello down there? Why those exact words? When I asked why those exact words were important, he said he would tell me on our next visit. But please, he said, don't call out. The following night, I returned to the signal station and joined him inside. He told me that he had mistaken me for someone else. When I asked who, he said, he didn't know for sure, because the person's left arm is always across his face as he waves violently with his right arm. Then he explained, One moonlight night, I was sitting here when I heard a voice cry out, Hello down there! I looked out of the door and saw a person standing by the red light, waving his right arm. The voice seemed quite hoarse as it cried, Hello down there! Look out! Look out! I ran to the figure, but just as I got to the place where it was standing, it was gone. I stood there in amazement, listening to the eerie wind blowing through the telegraph wires above me. Within six hours, there was news of a horrible crash at the other end of the tunnel. That was a year ago. A few months later, I saw the figure again, and the whole sequence was repeated. Within a few hours, a train came out of the tunnel and stopped at my station. I could hear the terrible cries as the conductor told me that a passenger had just suffered a violent death on board. The figure appeared again last week, but there has been no accident. I fear that this time, it will be me. I tried to talk him out of his fear, but was unable to calm him, so I left. I came back the next day to find a train stopped at the little house. I walked up to a group of men and asked what was wrong. The engineer told me that the signal man was killed this morning, cut down by the engine. He had changed the light, but somehow did not jump clear of the oncoming train. The engineer said, I saw him and blew the whistle. When he didn't react, I waved violently with my right arm as I covered my eyes with my left so that I would not see the disaster about to take place. I had to ask, what did you actually cry out? 
Then he told me his exact words were, Hello down there! Look out! Look out! Jazz in nowhere today. Everybody's doing the twist. Oh, Daddy, where do I split to to get this twist, Jazz? You fall on by Maury's Royal Twist Lounge. What do you mean, fall on by, Daddy? Give me numbers. Look numbers. at them up there. Big and bright, 7408 Michigan Avenue, about a half mile west of Livinois. 7408 Michigan Avenue, half mile west of Livinois. Do I put on my bassy boots? Bassy's digging it. Oh, no, they got the Royal Tones and the Radio Cats, Lee Allen on the horn, Dave Sangu Prince. They do it nice. Tuesday through Sunday, they do the twist. Okay, Daddy, let's split to the Royal Twist Lounge now. Hold it, fellas. You have to wait till opening night, Friday night, December the 8th, 1961, at Maury's Royal Twist Lounge, 7408 Michigan Avenue, a half mile west of Livernois. You dig, man. They're twisting at Maury's Royal Twist Lounge. The twist has come to Detroit. At Moray's Royal Twist Lounge. 7408 Michigan Avenue. I'll dig you Friday night, man. December 8th. Happy cows make happy meat. The kind of cows we love to eat. And we use every bit of the feet. We pour on the spice and they start to taste nice. But make sure you ask for well done. You run to bun, bun and run. Heck with dinner, have some fun. We're not hurting anyone at bun and run. So run to bun. Take a big bite, chew and swatter. Have another, you can take it. What a bargain for a dollar. It costs 20 cents to we have one, you're all done, you're all done, at Bun and Run, Bun and Run, tastes like beef but much more fun. All of the various animals that go into our prize burgers are raised on our beautiful 400 acre ranch in historic Appalachia. Once they seem dead, within weeks they're quick frozen and shipped indirectly to our distributors. After that, they're on their own, and so are you, at Bun and Run, where food is a four-letter word. Some assembly required. I had entered in an idle mood the shop of one of those Parisian curiosity vendors for the purpose of buying a unique paperweight. Examining what he showed me, I caught sight of a charming foot, which I at first took for a fragment of some antique statue of Venus, and I said, I'll take that foot. The merchant looked at me ironically and held out the object desired that I might examine it more fully. I was surprised at its lightness. It wasn't a foot of metal, but in truth, a foot of flesh, an embalmed foot, a mummy's foot. On examining it still more closely, the very grain of the skin and the almost imperceptible lines impressed upon it by the texture of the bandages became perceptible. It was the foot of the ancient Egyptian princess Hermanthus, the merchant assured me. I went home delighted with my acquisition. With the idea of putting it to profitable use as soon as possible, 
I placed the foot of the divine Princess Hermonthus upon a heap of papers on my table and then went out to dinner. It was a beautiful spring night, and the lights of Paris glowed along the boulevards. When I came back that evening with my brain slightly confused by a few glasses of wine, a vague whiff of oriental perfume delicately titillated my olfactory nerves. The heat of the room had warmed the natron, bitumen, and myrrh in which the parachistes, who cut open the bodies of the dead, had bathed the corpse of the princess. It was a perfume at once sweet and penetrating, a perfume that 4,000 years had not been able to dissipate. The dream of Egypt was eternity. Her odors have a solidity of granite and endure as long. I soon drank deeply from the black cup of sleep. For a few hours all remained opaque to me. Oblivion and nothingness inundated me with their somber waves. Yet light gradually dawned upon the darkness of my mind. Dreams commenced to touch me softly in their silent flight. The eyes of my soul were opened, and I beheld my chamber as it actually was. I might have believed myself awake, but for a vague consciousness which assured me that I slept and that something fantastic was about to take place. I beheld the strangest figure imaginable before me. It was a young girl of very deep coffee-brown complexion, with eyebrows so black that they seemed blue. She wore upon her bosom a little green idol figure bearing a whip with seven lashes, which proved it to be an image of Isis, the Egyptian goddess of the arts. One strange circumstance, which wasn't at all calculated to restore my equanimity, was that the apparition had but one foot, the other was broken off at the ankle. I comprehended it once, and I said, Princess, I never retained anybody's foot unjustly. Even though I paid for your foot, I present it to you gladly. I should feel unutterably wretched to think that I were the cause of so amiable a person as the Princess Hermanthus being lame. She turned a look of deepest gratitude upon me, and her eyes shone with a bluish gleam of light. She took her foot like a woman about to put on her little shoe and adjusted it to her leg with much skill. This operation over, she took a few steps about the room as though to assure herself that she was really no longer lame. And then she said, Oh, how pleased my father will be, he who was so unhappy because of my mutilation and who from the moment of my birth set a whole nation to work to hollow me out a tomb so deep that he might preserve me intact until the last day when souls must be weighed in the balance of a menthi. Come with me to my father. He will receive you kindly, for you have given me back my foot. Well, I was rather surprised I understood her, for she spoke in a most ancient Coptic tongue, such as might have been spoken 30 centuries ago in the syrinxes of the land of Sir. Somehow I understood Coptic perfectly well that night. As to her invitation for me to go with her to her father, I thought it natural enough. I arrayed myself in a dressing gown, hurriedly put on a pair of Turkish slippers, and informed the Princess Hermanthus that I was ready to follow her. Before starting, Hermanthus took from her neck the little green idol and laid it on the scattered sheets of paper which covered the table and said, It is only fair that I should replace your paperweight. She gave me her hand, which felt soft and cold like the skin of a serpent, and we departed. We passed for some time with the velocity of an arrow through a fluid of grayish expanse, in which half-formed silhouettes flitted swiftly by us to right and left. For an instant, we saw only sky and sea. A few moments later, obelisks commenced to tower in the distance. Pylons and vast flights of steps guarded by sphinxes became clearly outlined against the horizon. We had reached our destination. The princess conducted me to the mountain of rose-colored granite, in the face of which appeared an opening so narrow and low it would have been difficult to distinguish it from the fissures in the rock had not its location been marked by two stelae wrought with sculptures. 
Hermanthus kindled a torch and led the way before me. We traversed corridors hewn through the living rock, their walls covered with hieroglyphics. At last we found ourselves in a hall so vast, so enormous, so immeasurable that the eye could not reach the limits. The Princess Hermanthus still held my hand and graciously saluted the mummies of her acquaintance. All the pharaohs were there, Cheops, Kifrenes, Semeticus, Sesostris, Amenataph, all the dark rulers of the pyramids and the syrinxes. On yet higher throne sat Kronos and Zuzuthros. After permitting me to gaze upon this bewildering spectacle a few moments, the Princess Hermanthus presented me to her father Pharaoh, who favored me with a most gracious nod. The princess clapped her little hands together with every sign of frantic joy and said, I have found my foot again. I have found my foot. It was the gentleman who restored it to me. Pharaoh pointed his scepter at me and said, By Ohms, the dog of hell, and to my daughter of the sun and of truth, this is a brave and worthy lad. What recompense do you desire? Filled with daring, inspired by dreams in which nothing seemed impossible, I asked him for the hand of the Princess Hermanthus. Pharaoh opened wide his eyes of glass in astonishment at my request. What country do you come from? And what is your age? I uh, am a Frenchman and I'm 27 years old, venerable Pharaoh. 27 years old? <laughs> and he wishes to espouse the Princess Hermanthus, who is 30 centuries old. If you were even only 2,000 years old, I would willingly give you the princess. But the disproportion is too great. Besides, we must give our daughters husbands who will last well. You do not know how to preserve yourselves any longer. Even those who died only 15 centuries ago are already no more than a handful of dust. Behold, my flesh is as solid as basalt. My bones are bars of steel. I shall be present on the last day of the world with the same body and the same features which I had during my lifetime. My daughter will last longer than a statue of bronze. See how vigorous I yet remain and how mighty is my grasp. He shook my hand in the English fashion with a strength that buried my rings in the flesh of my fingers. He squeezed me so hard that, <coughs> that I awoke and found my friend Alfred shaking me by the arm to make me get up, saying, Oh, you everlasting sleeper. Must I have you carried out into the middle of the street and fireworks exploded in your ears? It's afternoon. Don't you recollect your promise to take me with you to see Monsieur Aquardo's Spanish pictures? I forgot all about it, I answered, getting up hurriedly. We'll uh, go there at once. I have the permit lying on my desk. I started to find it, but fancy my astonishment when I saw lying there, not the mummy's foot, but the little green idol left in its place by the princess Hermanthus. Love 
Yusinov's birthday this month. Excuse me, Sir Peter Alexander Yusinov's birthday. He's known around the world for being a great actor. From Spartacus to We're No Angels and Blackbeard's Ghost to Disney's Robin Hood. He's also known as a humorist, novelist, playwright, director, and also for being a good interview. So we have a few excerpts from his interviews with the BBC over the years. Happy birthday, Mr. Yusinov. We talked about your travels, they started very early, didn't they? Well, they started uh, prenatally, really. I did an awful lot of travelling as extra weight. <laughs> and uh, From where? From Leningrad. I think my uh, embryonic state was uh, started in Lem- Leningrad, and uh, I was eventually born, after a narrow squeak in uh, Amsterdam, in Swiss Cottage, mm. Adelaide Road, to be precise. <laughs> you went to one of the most English schools... Westminster, top hats and tailcoats. Were you bright at school? No, I was a matte finish on the whole. And uh, I once said that uh, I thought the British education was probably the best in the world if you could survive it. If you couldn't, there was nothing left for you but the diplomatic corps. (laughs) And I still feel that quite strongly on occasion. (laughs) You were interested in in, in writing and and designing and acting and, and, and producing and all those excellent things. Why did you opt for drama? My mother's family is all painters, and inevitably a family of large size with traditions of that sort tend to become a kind of mutual admiration society or even a a mutual condemnation society, which is just as bad. I was dying to do something slightly different for the rest of them. And I even got a letter from my great-uncle, Alexandre Benoit, when I actually started, saying, for centuries our family has been prowling round the theatre. Uh, We have designed them, we have built them, we have done scenery in them, we have conducted and we have composed. At last, one of us has had the sheer gall to clamber upon the boards himself. (laughs) Your first job was at the Players' Theatre, doing a sort of variety turn. What was the first play you did? Well, the first play of all was an early version of Chekhov's Uncle Vanya, called uh, The Wood Demon. Where did you do that? At the Barn Theatre at Shear in Sussex. Or is it Surrey? Anyway, Sorry, was, I think, I think yes. so too, yes. Mm. And uh, I was wearing my grandfather's smoking jacket, which was my only real connection with the past on that occasion, and I was listening to... The overture was uh, Tchaikovsky's uh, Polonaise from Eugene Onegin, 
and I can't listen to this to this day without feeling stage fright, and I don't suffer from stage fright anymore, but when I hear that, I remember the emotions of being on the stage for the first time, and I believe I had the first line, which were as difficult to remember as any of Chekhov's. It was something like, Will anybody have any more ham? <laughs> no, those things are very difficult to remember. You were already playing a character part. Oh, indeed I was. What was your first film job? My first film job was in an absurd film called Hello, Fame, uh, on which I was on a spangled ladder climbing to a ceiling and waving together with other promising young people. I had Jean Kent on the next ladder, and she got to of, the top much quicker than I did. Sort of Busby Berkeley number. A sort of Busby Berkeley in a room ten feet by ten feet somewhere in Paddington. You had your own first play on when you, you were only, what, 19? No, I wrote it when I was 19. It went on when I was 20, 21, really. Mm. Um, I was 21, yes, in 1942. Yes, you had joined the army. You were a, a not very dashing private, I believe. You had been rejected for the Secret Service. Yes, I had indeed. I hate to talk about my failures in this way, but my father engineered a meeting between a gentleman who was supposed to be reading the News Chronicle, which was then a popular... Uh, liberal newspaper in front of Sloane Square's underground station, uh, which is there to this day, of course. And I saw a man standing there who was very obviously not reading the paper, just looking at it. And I was supposed to go up to him and say, excuse me, sir, can you guide me to number 9 Eaton Square? And he was supposed to say, I'm going in that very direction. And then we walked off. I did that, and he looked at me, searching my face for evidence of all sorts of things. As we walked off, he said to me, Parlez-vous le Francaise? I said, oui, monsieur. Sprechen Sie Dutch? I said, ja, mein Herr. He said, good man. And we walked a few paces, and then he said I would uh, be informed. And he walked away, and then I got turned down after all my efforts. Uh, a measure, of course, which disappointed me as a spy but, on the other hand, gave me enormous encouragement as an actor, because he said, uh, unfortunately, my face would be very difficult to lose in a crowd. Well, your talents were, were pounced on, and you began to work in the Army Kinematographic Unit with very distinguished people like Colonel David Niven and Captain Carol Reed, and you had a headquarters at the Ritz Hotel, but you were still this not terribly military-looking private. For a while you got by as David Niven's Batman, I believe. Yes, well, under the establishment of the British Army, which hadn't changed since Waterloo, there was no possible way of keeping a private together with a colonel unless one was the Batman of the other. So that I used to work on the script of the film we were doing, which was called The Way Ahead, uh, in the Ritz Hotel, with David hovering near the door. Occasionally he'd say, K.V., and I would throw the script away and pick up his belt and start polishing it, and a general would look in and say, Morning! We'd both say, Morning. I'd stand up, and as soon as he'd gone, I'd throw the belt down on the floor <laughs> rather violently and pick up the script again. It was, it was a series of absolutely absurd situations. Mm -hmm. You've directed several operas, haven't you, Peter? Did you find that rewarding and exciting? It's a very difficult thing to do, Artra New and all the listeners, uh, simply because uh, you're dealing with uh, singers who, of course, know their parts musically in a most commendable way. I mean, you very rarely find actors that are so up on their parts at the first rehearsal. In fact, you never do. 
And you're delighted. You say, my goodness, where have I been all this time? This is marvellous. They all leap to the thing. Of course, the second uh, rehearsal resembles the first enormously because in the meanwhile they've sung Carmen and they've forgotten everything that you've told them. <laughs> and so it goes on until the end. There are some of them who are better singers, frankly, than actors. There are others that are good at both. There are a few who are not terribly good at either. And there are others who are so hardened in their profession that they roll with your punch and then on the first night when you can't get at them do exactly what they've always done uh, so that one starts out usually euphorically by the end you're thoroughly depressed and then Mozart or whoever it is gallops to the rescue because you've really rather forgotten the music I was very impressed to discover that you took singing lessons yourself at Rome Opera House that was in Metro Golden Mayor trying to make Quo Vadis the greatest film of all time I took three lessons at Rome Opera House from a man who confided in me that he only did it because uh, he needed the money, because of the grandmother is old and the children are young. I said, well, uh, that consideration was not entirely absent from my thinking. <laughs> and he said, in three lessons to teach you to sing is impossible. Three years, perhaps, perhaps, but uh, three years. Uh, Three uh, lessons is impossible, but I will try and squeeze a year a lesson. I said, fine. He said, the first thing I always tell to Gobi, the first thing to remember is to breathe with the forehead. I said, what? <laughs> he said, try, you must always try to breathe with the forehead. So I wrinkled my brow and tried to give the impression there was a small pulse in it. And he said, you are really very quick on the uptake. Uh, it's very good. Uh, tomorrow we will see how you improve. So tomorrow he, I went back. He said, now I will see how good uh, your memory. You will breathe with the... I said, forehead. Bravo! But it's incredible. So quickly you learn. Uh, then the second lesson I'm always telling to Gobi is not only breathe with the forehead, but think with the stomach. I said, oh, I see. So I tried to wear a rather constricted look, as though I was thinking with my stomach, and not forgetting to wrinkle my forehead to demonstrate that the little pulse was at work there. And the third lesson, he said, I will see how much you, if anything, you remember of the lesson so far. And I said, uh, yes. Then I ask you to think with the... Stomach. Bravo! <laughs> and to, to breathe with the forehead. It's incredible, I've never had the pupil so quick. And now the last thing I must tell you, the third lesson, as I always tell to Gobi, remember always under any circumstances to sing with the eye. And uh, I'm afraid that on occasion I might have forgotten to breathe with my forehead or to think with my stomach, but. Never, never did I ever forget to sing with the eye. I think that's probably the only part of me that was really singing at times. Yes. You've written Getting On for 20 plays, Peter. Which is your favourite play? Of mine? Yes. I don't know. I think probably Photo Finish is, in a way, which I think went further uh, than the others and, of course, was tremendously experimental in spite of the fact that it was absolutely naturalistic to look at. But the fact of a play running on four different time levels at once uh, is a technical accomplishment of which I'm rather proud because it actually works when you see it. 
and I've seen it in the most extraordinary countries. But at the same time, I hate saying which is my favourite play, because there was a play more recently called Halfway Up the Tree, which I was told by the critics and even partially by the public not to be terribly proud of. It was all right, and it was played very, very skillfully by Robert Morley in London, ran a long time. It was a disaster in Paris. It went well in Germany, but not terribly well in America. And I was told it was a lightweight piece. I saw it the other day in Leningrad, played by people that obviously did not have the benefit of my advice, because I had no <laughs> idea they were playing it. And I can only tell you that I really saw the play as it was written for the first time. And I began at the end to look at it as though it had been written by somebody completely different, and yet it was exactly, they hadn't changed the word, and it was marvellous. Latterly, you've been playing a lot in other people's films. You've been playing all over the place. Rather extraordinary parts, some of them. Uh, a one-legged sailor, Yugoslavian sailor, isn't it? No, it's a one-legged German uh, sergeant major ah. from the uh, Foreign Legion. That was Marty Feldman, who told uh, a, a press conference that he thought that I was a rather more verbal than physical comic. Uh, I said, well, you really put me on one leg and you say that. <laughs> what else have you been doing? Um, then I did a, a film in Ireland with a French director, and now I'm going to play Hercule Poirot. Murder on the Nile. Death on the Nile. The death, death on the Nile. Nile. One thing we haven't talked about, this is your autobiography, Dear Me. How did it feel to stand back and look at yourself so far? Uh, I was, curious enough, I found when I started, more interested in my extreme youth and childhood than in what happened later on, which is really part of the, the public record, or, I mean, I'm not being pompous, but at least people know more about that than mm -hmm. they do about all the secret difficulties I had when I was beginning and which humanly interested me now much more. But that's perhaps a symptom of growing old, too, because I find that, or I have found in my life, that very, very old men remember things that happened in the first five years of their lives with a clarity which they never had when they were younger. How high on your list of necessities would books come? Are they an essential part of your life? No, I tell you, the, the, the really terrible thing is that I'm not a very good reader. I know I should be. But I think if you write, you, it's very difficult to be a, an assiduous reader as well. I always feel very embarrassed if people ask me what the influences in my writing life have been. I shan't ask you that. I, no, don't, because okay. I really don't know, because I don't read enough to be influenced by that. I'm influenced by uh, completely different things, and it sounds terribly pretentious, but I would love to write the way Mozart wrote music. That I can understand as an influence, to create that kind of profundity which, which seems to be superficial. But when you examine it, it's a very deep kind of superficiality. In other words, the surface of the water is calm so that you can see the complication of the stones at the bottom. But when you say you like to write in the way that Mozart does, there's, there's another sense in that um, Mozart wrote very quickly without blotting a note, and things would come out whole without a lot of changes. Do you write in that way as well? Uh, I think if you look at my manuscripts, you'll find that there are not very many changes. When I make changes, I take out a whole chapter or a section and redo it. But I write longhand and with a fountain pen. And call me old-fashioned, if you will, but it's the thing which suits the speed of my mind. I sometimes make mistakes because I'm in a hurry. That happens. 
But I remember Mr. Bugatti, the motor car manufacturer, uh, saying that if an engine looks right, it is right. And uh, I think of the same thing of a printed page. It very often looks right, and it looks absolutely untroubled. And uh, then it, it very often is right, even if you have to change two or three tiny things. What sort of books do you settle down with? Well, I have my favourites, and I grew up with my favourites. At one time, it was Eric Linklater, whom I enjoyed very much, also because he had a kind of uh, mischievous accuracy about his writing, which pleased me a great deal. I'm very untidy as a person, but I have a very tidy mind, and I can always find what I want in the untidiness of my own room. But uh, when it comes to writing, I don't like excess. I think excess is the real cardinal sin, even in human relationships. I think everything treated as a condiment is normal. And whenever a condiment becomes a meal, it's abnormal and to be condemned. <laughs> the Marquis de Sade had a, had a great meal of salt, and I think it's inedible and horrible and disgusting. Who else apart from Linklater, then? Well, among modern writers, I'm very fond of Iris Murdoch's dissecting mind. I enjoy that very much because you feel you're in very good hands. Uh, you feel that even if you quarrel with something, there is really nothing to quarrel about because you're being dominated in a certain way by a very particular mind and a very particular style. And I rather like that because my own uh, th thinking is, is very different. In other words, I like things which I can't do. I don't really much care for, apart from people like Linklater, for kindred spirits of some sort. Uh, I prefer um, people doing things which I couldn't really begin to do. <laughs> Did you grow up amongst an atmosphere of books and stories? Were you read stories and things? Not, not really. I discovered them very much myself and went to a lending library and took out books. And uh, some of them attracted me and some of them didn't. And I had a great passion at one point for reading. I think that's because I was an only child, and at school I was not particularly happy. And I felt, uh, I even had then, when you look at it back, a really rather conventional religious phase in which I went to church fairly regularly, but then it, it only served to confirm me in what I secretly felt. And books, the same thing. I was dying to write then. And maybe it sounds very conceited, but I've been asked what book I would take onto the desert island. I'd rather take a lot of paper. <laughs> Are there any books which you have to read sort of every year, one that so, you're so fond of that you, you like to have it there, and when, I don't know, October comes, you take it down and read it again? No, uh, the one uh, piece of uh, reading which I very often dip into is The Good Soldier Schweik, because I was a private myself in the army for four and a half years. I hated every moment of it but knew at the same time I would once find it, I would find it irresistible as material in the future. So I was uh, rather like a wasp that's perched on a flower. He can't bear the smell, but it knows it'll turn into very good honey. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any books which you're, you're kind of keeping to read yes, later I'm on? Yes, I have nothing but that at home. I have an enormous amount of books I haven't read yet, uh, but really an enormous amount of books which I don't even know where to put, and I'm thinking of building an extension just to house the books, books and records. Uh, I've got so many of those that I'm really looking forward 
to being slightly ill uh, <laughs> in order to be able to do something about it. Because normally I feel either very well and therefore very active and eager to do things or so tired I can't bear the idea of a book. What about poetry? Do you ever read poetry? We've only talked about fiction, really, so far. There are some poets whom I'm very fond of, but at the same time, um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't understand the rules of poetry very well, or are there any? Since I consider that everything that's ever been written is a tiny bit too long, there's a famous haiku. Most of them I can't understand at all. I can understand them. I can read things into them which helps me to bear them, but there's one which is absolutely marvellous, from a kind of Turandot-type woman, a belle dame sans merci, uh, who wrote it relatively late, I think in the 18th century, a woman, and the poem in its entirety is Of the infinite steps to my heart, he scaled perhaps one or two, I think that's absolutely marvellous. And sometimes brevity, the soul of brevity, I remember from a taxi driver in Montreal who was of Romanian origin. He suddenly said to me as he was driving to the airport, and this is the, one of the most succinct short stories you can imagine, he said, I lost my wife to my good friend Bill. I don't care about her, but I sure miss him. And anyway, thank God, I've still got mother. And I suddenly saw the points of view of him, the mother, Bill, and the wife. <laughs> There's a, a game, I believe, originated in America where you can only win it by not having read books. You go around the table and you put your hand up if you haven't read Emma or you haven't read War and Peace or something. Are there any of those huge, towering masterpieces that everybody's read in inverted commas, but actually you haven't? Oh, nearly all of them. I've obviously read, uh, I've read War and Peace, but at a respectful distance, and stopping and going back, because I keep on having, despite my Russian origin, I can't remember who everybody is without going back, and to read War and Peace, I need 15 bookmarks. I've read a great deal now of Dostoevsky, because I think Dostoevsky is a much funnier writer than people imagine. I think there's a, there's a strain of comedy in there which is really quite irresistible at times. You look up Victorian um, literary criticism and you find that a remote Russian author called Pisimsky was uh, an author of unrelieved gloom. Nowadays, thanks to the diffusion of paperbacks, especially in America where you can find absolutely everything, I found a copy of one of his books and I laughed until I cried. What the Edwardians were thinking of, I can't imagine. <laughs> Which of you was misreading him? <laughs> exactly. I have no idea, but I think, I think they all were. I think they all were. They all thought, because the thing is Russian, it must be gloomy. But I know myself, as a writer, that my plays are instinctively better played in Russia than anywhere else, simply because they have a, an absolutely natural aptitude for tragic comedy of not knowing and not caring whether you're going to laugh or cry the next minute. They don't push it overboard into comedy, as is always the tendency in England, where they love to laugh. Or the kind of seriousness which attends your essays into the German theatre. 
where they don't laugh very much, but they have a kind of wine-tasting noise, which the French make too, when a thing is, to their mind, not worthy of a laugh, but worthy of an appreciation for its wit, you then suddenly get a... <sighs> which is a lovely sound if you get used to it. When you first hear it, it's terrifying. It sounds like a track of some, some endangered species in the jungle. Are you alone here? Oh, hardly. <laughs> Got all these cats. Is is that what they're called? Cats? Yeah, and they've each got their own name. Cats, of course. What else would they be called? <laughs> cats. Do you know they've each got three names? Yes. The naming of cats is a difficult matter. It's not just one of your holiday games. You may think at first I'm mad as a hatter when I tell you that each cat. Got three different names. See, they got the ordinary name, and then they got their fancy name. And that makes two names, doesn't it? Well, now it's got a third name. Can either of you two guess what that third name is? Come on! <laughs> Above and beyond, there's one name that's left over, and this is the name you never will guess. It's a name no human research can discover, but the cat itself knows, and never will confess, will you, Henry? <laughs> Once upon a time there was an engineer. Choo-choo Charlie was his name, we hear. He had an engine and he sure had fun. He used good and plenty candy to make his train run. The illustrations of Toad and Frog have always enchanted me, just like their real brothers. They both ring in the springtime. Here's an excerpt from the musical, A Year with Toad and Frog. Then we have one of the Toad and Frog stories, read by the author and illustrator, Arnold Lobel. But it is so toad, flowers grow toad, sprouting through the clover. Ah. Clover. Toad. Ah. Toad, your alarm clock is ringing. It's spring. It's spring? Yes. Ding, ding-a-ling, ding-a-ling, is it spring, is it true? Yes. Frog, would you please be so kind as to hand me my shoe? Why, certainly, Toad. Thank you, Frog. <laughs> Good night. Clover. But, Toad, it's April. Oh, is it April? Yes. Good. Wake me up in May. But, Toad, I will be lonely without you. Blah. I love the spring. It's an excellent season. 
wonderful things to see and to do. And yet I am sad for an excellent reason. Spring isn't springy, no, not without you. But Toad, it is a long time until May. Well, January's over. February's over. March is over. April's almost over. Oops, I guess April is over. Toad, it's May! It's May? According to your calendar. Oh my! There's so much to do. I've got to clean the house. And I've got to mulch the yard. And I've got to get some breakfast. I haven't eaten since January. Is it? You know, I was just thinking, that extra month of sleep really makes a difference. Smell the flowers, see the plants, hear the marching of the ants. Feel the sunshine, feel the breeze. Look out, frog, here come some bees. Listen to the birdies sing. Twing, 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 let's greet the spring. Let's greet the spring. It's spring. A swim. Toad and Frog went down to the river. What a day for a swim, said Frog. Yes, said Toad. I will go behind these rocks and put on my bathing suit. I don't wear a bathing suit, said Frog. Well, I do, said Toad. After I put on my bathing suit, you must not look at me until I get into the water. Why not? asked Frog. Because I look funny in my bathing suit. That is why, said Toad. Frog closed his eyes when Toad came out from behind the rocks. Toad was wearing his bathing suit. Don't peek, he said. Frog and Toad jumped into the water. They swam all afternoon. Frog swam fast and made big splashes. Toad swam slowly and made smaller splashes. A turtle came along the river bank. Frog, tell that turtle to go away, said Toad. I do not want him to see me in my bathing suit when I come out of the river. Frog swam over to the turtle. Turtle, said Frog, you will have to go away. Why should I? asked the turtle. Because Toad thinks that he looks funny in his bathing suit, and he does not want you to see him, said Frog. Some lizards were sitting nearby. Does Toad really look funny in his bathing suit? They asked. A snake crawled out of the grass. If Toad looks funny in his bathing suit, said the snake, then I, for one, want to see him. We want to see him too, 
said two dragonflies. Me too, said a field mouse. I have not seen anything funny in a long time. Frog swam back to Toad. I am sorry, Toad, he said. Everyone wants to see how you will look. And I will stay right here until they go away, said Toad. The turtle and the lizards and the snake and the dragonflies and the field mouse all sat on the riverbank. They waited for Toad to come out of the water. Please, cried Frog, please go away. But no one went away. Toad was getting colder and colder. He was beginning to shiver and sneeze. I will have to come out of the water, said Toad. I am catching a cold. Toad climbed out of the river. The water dripped out of his bathing suit and down onto his feet. The turtle laughed. The lizards laughed. The snake laughed. The field mouse laughed. And Frog laughed. What are you laughing at, Frog? said Toad. I am laughing at you, Toad said Frog, because you do look funny in your bathing suit. Of course I do, said Toad. Then he picked up his clothes and went home. for the authentic original twist! Hi, this is George K. of the Royal Tones reminding you that beginning this coming Friday night, the Royal Tones and myself are starting the biggest thing of our musical career. We're opening at Maury's Royal Twist Lounge, and with us we're bringing the authentic original twist. We'll see you Friday night to kick it off. And after that, six nights a week, Tuesday through Sunday. That's right, the Royal Tones in person, six nights a week, Tuesday through Sunday. Lee Allen and Dave Prince also in person at Murray's Royal Twist Lounge, 7408 Michigan Avenue, a half mile west of Livernois. And remember, Friday night is the big night at Murray's Royal Twist Lounge when the authentic, original twist comes to Detroit. Remember, you must be Now from 1977, Leonard Nimoy reading Robert Heinlein's The Green Hills of Earth. This is the story of Risling, the blind singer of the spaceways, but not the official version. You sang his words in school. I pray for one last landing on the globe that gave me birth. Let me rest my eyes on the fleecy skies and the cool green hills of Earth. Or perhaps you sang in French or German, or it might have been Esperanto, while Terra's rainbow banner rippled over your head. The language does not matter. It was certainly an earth tongue. 
No one has ever translated green hills into the lisping Venerian speech. No Martian ever croaked and whispered it in the dry corridors. This is ours. We of Earth have exported everything from Hollywood crawlies to synthetic radioactives. But this belongs solely to Terra and to her sons and daughters, wherever they may be. We've all heard many stories of Risling. You may even be one of the many who've sought degrees or acclaim by scholarly evaluations of his published works. Songs of the Spaceways, the Grand Canal, and other poems, High and Far, and Up Ship. Nevertheless, although you've sung his songs and read his verses in school and out your whole life, it is at least an even money bet, unless you're a spaceman yourself, that you've never even heard of most of Risling's unpublished songs, such items as Since the Pusher Met My Cousin, That Red-Headed Venusburg Gal, Keep Your Pants On, Skipper, or A Spacesuit Built for Two. Nor can we quote them in a family magazine. Risling's reputation was protected by a careful literary executor and by the happy chance that he was never interviewed. Songs of the Spaceways appeared the week he died. When it became a bestseller, the publicity stories about him were pieced together from what people remembered about him, plus the highly colored handouts from his publishers. The resulting traditional picture of Risling is about as authentic as George Washington's hatchet or King Alfred's cakes. In truth, you would not have wanted him in your parlor. He was not socially acceptable. He had a permanent case of sun itch, which he scratched continually, adding nothing to his negligible beauty. Van der Voort's portrait of him for the Harriman Centennial edition of his works shows a figure of high tragedy, a solemn mouth, sightless eyes concealed by black silk bandage. He was never solemn. His mouth was always open, singing, grinning, drinking, or eating. The bandage was any rag, usually dirty. After he lost his sight, he became less and less neat about his person. Noisy Risling was a jetman, second class, with eyes as good as yours when he signed on for a loop trip to the Jovian asteroids in the R.S. Goshawk. The crew signed releases for everything in those days. A Lloyd's associate would have laughed in your face at the notion of insuring a spaceman. The Space Precautionary Act had never been heard of and the company was responsible only for wages if and when. Half the ships that went further than Luna City never came back. Spacemen did not care. By preference, they signed for shares, and any of them would have bet you that he could jump from the 200th floor of Harriman Tower and ground safely if you offered him three to two and allowed him rubber heels for the landing. Jetmen were the most carefree of the lot and the meanest. Compared with them, the masters, the radar men, and the astrogators, there were no supers or stewards in those days, were gentle vegetarians. Jetman knew too much. The others trusted the skill of the captain to get them down safely. Jetman knew that skill was useless against the blind and fitful devils chained inside their rocket motors. The Goshawk was the first of Harriman's ships to be converted from chemical fuel to atomic power piles or rather the first that did not blow up. Risling knew her well. She was an old tub that had plied the Luna City run, super New York space station to Layport and back before she was converted for deep space. He had worked the Luna run in her, 
and had been along on the first deep space trip, dry water on Mars and back, to everyone's surprise. He should have made chief engineer by the time he signed for the Jovian loop trip, but after the dry water pioneer trip, he'd been fired, blacklisted, and grounded at Luna City for having spent his time writing a chorus and several verses at a time when he should have been watching his gauges. The song was the infamous, The Skipper is a Father to His Crew, with the uproariously unprintable final couplet. The blacklist did not bother him. He won an accordion from a Chinese barkeep in Luna City by cheating at one thumb, and thereafter kept going by singing to the miners for drinks and tips, until the rapid attrition in Spaceman caused the company agent there to give him another chance. He kept his nose clean on the lunar run for a year or two, got back into deep space, helped give Venusburg its original ripe reputation, strolled the banks of the Grand Canal when a second colony was established at the ancient Martian capital, and froze his toes and ears on a second trip to Titan. Things moved fast in those days. Once the power pile drive was accepted, the number of ships that put out from the Luna Terra system was limited only by the availability of crews. Jetmen were scarce. The shielding was cut to a minimum to save weight, and few married men cared to risk possible exposure to radioactivity. Risling did not want to be a father, so jobs were always open to him during the golden days of the claiming boom. He crossed and recrossed the system, singing the doggerel that boiled up in his head and courting it out on his accordion. The master of the goshawk knew him. Captain Hicks had been astrogator on Risling's first trip in her. Welcome home, noisy, Hicks had greeted him. Are you sober? Or shall I sign the book for you? You can't get drunk on the bug juice they sell here, Skipper. He signed and went below, lugging his accordion. Ten minutes later, he was back. Captain, he stated darkly, that number two jet ain't fit. The cadmium dampers are warped. Why tell me? Tell the chief. I did, but he says they'll do. He's wrong. The captain gestured at the book. Scratch out your name and scram. We raise ship in 30 minutes. Risling looked at him, shrugged, and went below again. It's a long climb to the Jovian planetoids. A Hawk-class clunker had to blast for three watches before going into free flight. Risling had the second watch. Damping was done by hand then with a multiplying vernier and a danger gauge. When the gauge showed red, he tried to correct it. No luck. Jetmen don't wait. That's why they are jetmen. He slapped the emergency discover and fished at the hot stuff with the tongs. The lights went out. He went right ahead. A jetman has to know his power room the way your tongue knows the inside of your mouth. He sneaked a quick look over the top of the lead baffle when the lights went out. The blue radioactive glow did not help him any. He jerked his head back and went on fishing by touch. When he was done, he called over the tube. Number two, jet out, and for Christ's sake, get me some light down here. There was light, the emergency circuit, but not for him. The blue radioactive glow was the last thing his optic nerve ever responded to. As time and space come bending back to shape this star-specked scene, the tranquil tears of tragic joy still spread their silver sheen. Along the Grand Canal still saw the fragile towers of truth. Their fairy grace defends this place of beauty, calm, and couth. 
Bone tired, the race that raised the towers, forgotten are their lores. Long gone, the gods who shed the tears that lapped these crystal shores. Slow beats the time-worn heart of Mars beneath this icy sky. The thin air whispers voicelessly that all who live must die. Yet still the lacy spires of truth sing beauty's madrigal, and she herself will ever dwell along the Grand Canal. From the Grand Canal, by permission of Lux Transcriptions Limited, London and Luna City. On the swing back, they set Risling down on Mars at dry water. The boys passed the hat, and the skipper kicked in a half month's pay. That was all. Finney, just another space bum who'd not had the good fortune to finish it off when his luck ran out. He holed up with the prospectors and archaeologists at how far for a month or so, and could probably have stayed forever in exchange for his songs and his accordion playing. But spacemen die if they stay in one place. He hooked the crawler over to dry water again, and thence to Marsopolis. The capital was well into its boom. The processing plants lined the Grand Canal on both sides and roiled the ancient waters with the filth of the runoff. This was before the Triplanet Treaty for bad disturbing cultural relics for commerce. Half the slender, fairy-like towers had been torn down, and others were disfigured to adapt them as pressurized buildings for Earthmen. Now, Risling had never seen any of these changes, and no one described them to him. When he saw Marsopolis again, he visualized it as it had been before it was rationalized for trade. His memory was good. He stood on the riparian esplanade where the ancient great of Mars had taken their ease and saw its beauty spreading out before his blinded eyes. Ice blue plain of water unmoved by tide, untouched by breeze, reflecting serenely the sharp, bright stars of the Martian sky. And beyond the water, the lacy buttresses and flying towers of an architecture too delicate for our rumbling, heavy planet. The result was Grand Canal. The subtle change in his orientation, which enabled him to see beauty at Marsopolis, where beauty was not now, began to affect his whole life. All women became beautiful to him, he knew them by their voices and fitted their appearances to the sounds. It is a mean spirit indeed who will speak to a blind man other than in gentle friendliness. Scolds who had given their husbands no peace sweetened their voices to Risling. It populated his world with beautiful women and gracious men. Dark star passing, Berenice's hair, death song of a woods colt, and his other love songs of the wanderers, the womenless men of space were the direct result of the fact that his conceptions were unsullied by tawdry truths. It mellowed his approach, changed his doggerel to verse, and sometimes even to poetry. He had plenty of time to think now, time to get all the lovely words just so, and to worry a verse until it sang true in his head, the monotonous beat of jet song. When the field is clear, the report's all seen. When the lock sighs shut, when the lights wink green. When the checkoff's done, when it's time to pray, when the captain nods when she blasts away. Hear the jets, hear them snort at your back. When you're stretched on the rack, feel your ribs clamp your chest. 
Feel your neck grind its rest, feel the pain in your ship, feel your strain in their grip, feel your rise, feel your drive, straining steel come alive on her jets. Came to him not while he himself was a jetman, but later while he was hitchhiking from Mars to Venus and sitting out a watch with an old shipmate. At Venusburg he sang his new songs and some of the old in the bars. Someone would start a hat around for him. It would come back with a minstrel's usual take, doubled or tripled in recognition of the gallant spirit behind the bandaged eyes. It was an easy life. Any spaceport was his home, and any ship his private carriage. No skipper cared to refuse to lift the extra mass of blind Risling in his squeeze box. He shuttled from Venusburg to Layport, to Drywater, to New Shanghai, or back again as the whim took him. He never went closer to Earth than Super New York Space Station. Even when signing the contract for Songs of the Spaceways, he made his mark in a cabin-class liner somewhere between Luna City and Ganymede. Horowitz, the original publisher, was aboard for a second honeymoon and heard Risling sing at a ship's party. Horowitz knew a good thing for the publishing trade when he heard it. The entire contents of Songs were sung directly into the tape in the communications room of that ship before he let Risling out of his sight. The next three volumes were squeezed out of Risling at Venusburg, where Horowitz had sent an agent to keep him liquored up until he had sung all he could remember. Up ship is not certainly authentic Risling throughout. Much of it is Risling's, no doubt, and Jet's song is unquestionably his, but most of the verses were collected after his death from people who had known him during his wanderings. The green hills of Earth grew through 20 years. The earliest form we know about was composed before Risling was blinded during a drinking bout with some of the indentured men on Venus. The verses were concerned mostly with the things the labor clients intended to do back on Earth if and when they ever managed to pay their bounties and thereby be allowed to go home. Some of the stanzas were vulgar, some were not, but the chorus was recognizably that of Green Hills. We know exactly where the final form of Green Hills came from, and when. There was a ship in at Venus Ellis Isle, which was scheduled for the direct jump from there to Great Lakes, Illinois. She was the old Falcon, youngest of the Hawk class, and the first ship to apply the Harriman Trust's new policy of extra fare express service between Earth cities and any colony with scheduled stops. Risling decided to ride her back to Earth, Perhaps his own song had gotten under his skin, or perhaps he just hankered to see his native Ozarks one more time. The company no longer permitted deadheads. Risling knew this, but it never occurred to him that the ruling might apply to him. He was getting old for a spaceman and just a little matter of fact about his privileges. Not senile, he simply knew that he was one of the landmarks in space, along with Halley's Comet, the Rings, and Brewster's Ridge. He walked in the cruise port, went below, and made himself at home in the first empty acceleration couch. The captain found him there while making a last-minute tour of his ship. What are you doing here, he demanded. Dragging it back to Earth, Captain. Risling needed no eyes to see a skipper's four stripes. You can't drag in this ship, you know the rules. Shake a leg and get out of here. We raise ship at once. The captain was young. He'd come up after Risling's active time, but Risling knew the type. Five years at Harriman Hall with only cadet practice trips instead of solid deep space experience. The two men did not touch in background nor spirit. 
Space was changing. Now, Captain, you wouldn't begrudge an old man a trip home? The officer hesitated. Several of the crew had stopped to listen. I can't do it. Space Precautionary Act, Clause 6. No one shall enter space save as a licensed member of a crew of a chartered vessel or as a paying passenger of such a vessel under such regulations as may be issued pursuant to this act. Up you get and out you go. Risling lolled back, his hands under his head. If I've got to go, I'm damned if I'll walk. Carry me. The captain bit his lip and said, Master at arms, have this man removed. The ship's policeman fixed his eyes on the overhead struts. Can't rightly do it, Captain. I've sprained my shoulder. The other crew members present a moment before had faded into the bulkhead paint. We'll get a working party. Aye, aye, sir. He too went away. Risling spoke again. Now look, Skipper. Let's not have any hard feelings about this. You've got an out to carry me if you want to. The distressed spaceman clause. Distressed spaceman, my eye. You're no distressed spaceman. You're a space lawyer. I know who you are. You've been bumming around the system for years. Well, you won't do it in my ship. The clause was intended to succor men who had missed their ships, not to let a man drag free all over space. Well, now, Captain, can you properly say I haven't missed my ship? I've never been back home since my last trip as a signed-on crew member. The law says I can have a trip back. But that was years ago. You've used up your chance. Have I now? The clause doesn't say a word about how soon a man has to take his trip back. It just says he's got it coming to him. Go look it up, Skipper. If I'm wrong, I'll not only walk out on my two legs, I'll beg your humble pardon in front of your crew. Go on, look it up. Be a sport. Risling could feel the man's glare, but he turned and stomped out of the compartment. Risling knew that he'd used his blindness to place the captain in an impossible position. But this did not embarrass Risling. He rather enjoyed it. Ten minutes later, the siren sounded. He heard the orders on the bullhorn for upstations. When the soft sighing of the locks and the slight pressure change in his ears let him know the takeoff was imminent, he got up and shuffled down to the power room as he wanted to be near the jets when they blasted off. He needed no one to guide him in any ship of the Hawk class. Trouble started during the first watch. Risling had been lounging in the inspector's chair, fiddling with the keys of his accordion, trying out a new version of Green Hills. Let me breathe unrationed air again, where there's no lack nor dearth. And something, 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 earth. It would not come out right. He tried again. Let the sweet, fresh breezes heal me as they rove around the girth of our lovely mother planet of the cool green hills of Earth. That was better, he thought. How do you like that, Archie? He asked over the muted roar. Pretty good. Give up the whole thing. Archie McDougall, Chief Jetman, was an old friend, both space-side and in bars. He'd been an apprentice under Risling many years and millions of miles back. Risling obliged, then said, you youngsters have got it soft, everything automatic. When I was twisting her tail, you had to stay awake. You still have to stay awake. 
They fell to talking shop, and McDougal showed him the new direct response damping rig, which had replaced the manual vernier control which Risling had used. Risling felt out the controls and asked questions until he was familiar with the new installation. It was his conceit that he was still a jetman, and that his present occupation as a troubadour was simply an expedient during one of the fusses with the company that any man could get into. I see you still have the old hand damping plates installed, he remarked, his agile fingers flitting over the equipment. All except the links. I unshipped them because they obscure the dials. You ought to have them shipped. You might need them. Oh, I don't know. I think... Risling never did find out what McDougal thought, for it was at that moment the trouble tore loose. McDougal caught it square, a blast of radioactivity that burned him down where he stood. Risling sensed what had happened. Automatic reflexes of old habit came out. He slapped the discoverer and rang the alarm to the control room simultaneously. Then he remembered the unshipped links. He had to grope until he found them while trying to keep as low as he could to get maximum benefit from the baffles. Nothing but the links bothered him as to location. The place was as light to him as any place could be. He knew every spot, every control, the way he knew the keys of his accordion. Power room, power room, what's the alarm? Stay out, Risling shouted. The place is hot. He could feel it on his face and in his bones like desert sunshine. The links he got into place after cursing someone, anyone, for having failed to rack the wrench he needed. Then he commenced trying to reduce the trouble by hand. It was a long job and ticklish. Presently, he decided that the jet would have to be spilled, pile and all. First, he reported, Control! Control, aye, aye. Spilling jet three, emergency. Is this McDougal? McDougal's dead. This is Risling on watch. Stand by to record. There was no answer. Dumbfounded, the skipper may have been, but he could not interfere in a power room emergency. He had the ship to consider, and the passengers and crew. The doors had to stay closed. The captain must have been still more surprised at what Risling sent for record. It was, we wrought in the molds of Venus. We wretched retainted breath, foul are her flooded jungles, crawling with unclean death. Risling went on cataloging the solar system as he worked. Harsh, bright soil of Luna, Saturn's rainbow rings, the frozen night of Titan, all the while opening and spilling the jet and fishing it clean. He finished with an alternate chorus. We've tried each spinning space moat and reckoned its true worth. Take us back to the homes of men on the cool green hills of Earth. Then almost absent-mindedly remembered the tack on his revised first verse. The arching sky is calling spacemen back to their trade. All hands stand by, free-falling, and the lights below us fade. Out ride the sons of terror. Far drives the thundering jet. Up leaps the race of earthmen, out far and onward yet. The ship was safe now, ready to limp home, shy one jet. As for himself, Risling was not so sure. That sunburn seemed pretty sharp, he thought. He was unable to see the bright, rosy fog in which he worked, but he knew it was there. He went on with the business of flushing the air out through the outer valve, repeating it several times to permit the level of radioaction to drop to something a man might stand under suitable armor. While he did this, he sent one more chorus. 
the last bit of authentic Risling that ever could be. We pray for one last landing on the globe that gave us birth. Let us rest our eyes on fleecy skies and the cool green hills of Earth. Well, that's that. That's our show, folks. But before we go, Uncle Frank's got one more thing for us. It's also Tiny Tim's birthday this month, that falsetto master of the ukulele, American singer and musical archivist, and the only man I know who's married on The Tonight Show. We're ending tonight with one of his lesser-known songs, You Try Somebody Else. So see you next month. This is Uncle Frank. But but please don't try somebody else. <laughs> see you next time. Somebody else, I'll try somebody else, and when we do, we'll both be blue and be back together again. You try painting the town, I'll try acting the clown. We'll travel fast, but it won't last. We'll be together again. Let's take our fun when we find it. I know deep down in my heart, if I was meant for you, if you were meant for me, nothing. You try somebody else I'll try somebody else It won't take long to find we're wrong We'll be back together again I'm so glad we had this understanding Because we're both acting strange We both need a change Maybe love has made us too demanding So sweetheart, I think it best That we put love to the test
so you try somebody else. I'll try somebody else. It won't take long to find where I will be back together again. That's Alan, wonderful. <laughs> I tell you, she might come back.